To enjoy this and other great episodes on Patreon, check out the link in the description and subscribe via the Black Kluge tier for full access to over 100 exclusive episodes. For those of you who would like some QF swag on TeePublic t-shirts, magnets, mugs, what have you, also click on the link in the description. First of all, the nerve of your fucking ass to call me and tell me your fucking problem. Fuck off. Get lost. Get off. Take your stupid subscription and cancel. Who cares, Dina? Fuck you. Fuck you, cunt. Fuck you. Get lost. Don't do my audience. I'll do my audience whatever I want. I'll piss on this audience if I Douche. I do have uh, issues about people leaving me. I want to control everyone in my atmosphere. I want, I am a puppet master and I want everyone to be a puppet. He was saying goodbye to me and he leaned in for a kiss and I smiled so big that he literally kissed my teeth. Um, I cheated on every one of my boyfriends except for Howard. For real? Mm-hmm. Really? The day I met Howard, my cheating days ended. You were a cheater? I was a cheater. I hate Beth. I think she's only after Howard's money and she's, <laughs> and she's a real horse face. Can you bang any of those stripper broads on the, uh, on the show? Teresa Lynch said you banged up. Teresa who? She was on here. She told she was in your movie, Private Parts. Oh, Amy. One of the, no, no, no. Teresa, the, the one with the... Oh, no. The the she, she never said that. She told That's me. That's a lie. To admit you're lying. That's Tony. She called Tony. Did I ever bang Teresa Lynn? Take in New Jersey. Welcome to the wrap-up Which, show. Does any of you gentlemen believe that Beth actually loves Howard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's, let's cut right to the nitty-gritty. Artie and I spent last weekend with him, and if she's in love, then she should get a fucking Oscar. Right? She's not in love. She's, I mean, <laughs> she's in love, she should get an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready and slim. See? Uh-oh, here comes Beth. Howard is Beth. I'm knitting baby booties. <laughs> what are you doing, Beth? I'm knitting baby booties. <laughs> Our blonde, our blonde curly-haired son. At least you don't have to pretend your dog is actually a child. <laughs> Beth once even said to me, it was funny too, because Beth once said to me, you know, I wouldn't mind being engaged forever. Like, like this was, you know, years ago. She was, I just think the ring is so great. I would uh -huh. love to, you know, it's romantic. And, and it's romantic yeah. and it's kind of cool. But the second I uh, popped the question, she was like, well, let's get on the phone and tell everyone we're getting married. I went, whoa, whoa. Yeah. no, 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 we're not getting married, we're engaged. <laughs> There's no such thing. You know what it is? I'm so self-important, I just don't even remember meeting anyone. She was up here one day and I introduced you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I'm, cured. I'm not going to be cured of anything. I am me. I am just going to a psychiatrist so that I can feel better about certain issues in my life. That's all. You're listening to QF, a podcast about Howard Stern, and I'm Fillmore. How are you today, today, Ben? Are you doing all right? Good, good. I'm glad to dive back into this book. Yeah, we're actually making a more headway than I thought. We're going into, if you're following along, guys, page 59, uh, third paragraph of the hardback. And we're going into chapter seven, and we'll get into chapter eight if we if all things go according to plan. So, um, on I'll I'll go with the the clip that we I think we might have played last time, but uh, the clip is uh, this one sounds even more familiar. I decided to cut down the barriers and just go into being myself on the air. He told a reporter, "Strip down all the ego. I mean, what prevents an announcer from talking about the fact that he has hemorrhoids because he has an ego?" Well, I thought, let's strip that away and be totally honest. Okay, well, I'm not sure the correlation between ego and talking about your hemorrhoids, not wanting to talk about your hemorrhoids. Um, yeah. except uh, I suspect I, I think, he, I think he's, he's talking about, like, embarrassment. He's talking about uh, uh, an unwillingness to uh, let yourself be exposed, really. 
Well, yeah. Well, what would be the reason to talk about that between songs? <laughs> Your job was to play <laughs> rock and roll songs in the morning, give traffic yeah. updates, weather yeah, updates, school no closures, no and talk kidding. hemorrhoids. But I think yeah. that the old ego thing was him uh, doing transcendental meditation jargon, and you know, taking some Maharishi, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, yeah, uh, thoughts on ego and saying that's what I was having as well. So basically, I wouldn't be surprised if when he told the reporter this, it was after having interviewed, say, the Maharishi, which he did later on. I don't know that it was at the time he told a reporter this. Yeah, and it's uh, it dovetails into the second, the next paragraph, which talks about TM, which is a great segue. Thank you. Uh, he continued to seek peace through transcendental meditation. TM remained vitally important and helped him channel his energy into devising radio shtick. He was not the person you heard on the air. Beller added, "That's the character he is. He's really a conservative guy from Long Island. I used to call him Jacob Javits." Uh, and in parentheses, it says Javits, the United States senator from New York, was far more liberal than most of his colleagues but still an establishment politician and Republican. So he would not want that out there, Howard, if, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's reason enough for him to hate this book. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and not yeah, want to have think- anybody associated, you know, he put a gag order on Ben. He said, no one's to help out uh, Colford yeah. in the process of this. And he was very embarrassed about the transcendental meditation stuff for the longest time until oh, yeah. it became very fashionable to, to, yeah. for, you know, David Lynch and, but Paul McCartney and so Seinfeld. on. Seinfeld. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Long Island chic, transcendental meditation stuff. So, mm-hmm. in the same way that he was, you know, quiet and embarrassed about being Jewish for the longest time, and then later on became, that's all I am. You know, he's no, he was no longer the half Jew, joking, joking guy. Now it's I've been persecuted my whole life for being Jewish. Right. He was. He, you know, this was uh, when he was Miles August. But <laughs> <laughs> for those of you yeah. not in the know, that was a pseudonym he gave. He gave himself like for the you know personality, and then decided to go with his real name, which he took from somebody else. I think it was the cousin of someone that he went to college with was named Miles August, something like that. So he just said, "Now that's mine." Well, listen, Miles August is a is a far and away a quantum improvement over Howard Stern, let's be honest. But yeah. uh, obviously it worked out pretty well for him. So there's a little more that's not in the audiobook, guys. As the months passed, it was becoming clearer to people that in the radio industry, sorry, in the radio industry, but not necessarily to Howard, that WWW, of course, which is he's at W4 in Detroit, guys, still, would continue to falter. Competition was strengthening. Shamrock Broadcasting was tempted to see, seek more lucrative opportunities with country music. In addition... Uh, sorry, uh, there's uh, – so this is where it continues for the audio. Hold on. People, the, do people realize Shamrock was uh, – one of the Disney family members was on the board of Shamrock. So Howard, Howard will sometimes say he worked for Disney. That's yeah. what he means when he says that. It's not like Disney that you – Disney Plus is going to be running old Howard Stern episodes. Yeah. It's not that Disney that he worked for. No. But uh, – uh, but yeah, but anyway, they were they're they're a business, and they're in Detroit, where here their station is, I don't know, number nine or something like that, out of all the out of all rock stations, mm-hmm. and country music nationwide is becoming very popular. Yeah. Um. And so they just saw an opportunity. 
Yep. Uh, this, this this clip, they're going to continue part of the reading as soon as I get into the audio, but this one is called Wiggy's Bang Up Cart- Jimmy Carter Impression. I just cl- clipped a segment of it from the time of W4. Hello, hello? This is yeah. Alan? Yeah. Alan, hello, this is President Jimmy Carter. How are you? I want to thank you for voting for me yesterday in the election. Yeah. I want to thank you for being a loyal Democrat and helping me out. I wish you were got office, though. I know. I want to thank you, though, for voting for me. And I want to thank you for supporting me as your president. I'm calling each and every good citizen who has helped me out when I was in my time of need. Okay. You, sir, are a good American. And, uh, well, now I'm a little strapped for cash. I'm wondering if I could borrow maybe $25 from you. <laughs> so it just it illustrates that his improve, his uh, impressions never improved one iota. <laughs> no. Yeah. The uh, the next clip, guys, uh, this one actually I, I enjoyed a lot. It's called W4 Staffers Play a Goof on Howard. And this was when, um, I'll, you know, I think the guy will explain it. Howard was getting some major attention from the radio industry, winning the Billboard Award for Best AOR Disc Jockey. Tell you a story. But W4 was losing in the ratings battle, and the competition let him know about it. WLLZ's Jeffrey Young. Right after the fall Arbitron came out and the numbers were on the table for the world to see, including W4's spectacular Hindenburg crash and burn. A couple of days after that, shortly thereafter, Howard was doing a morning show, one of these pre-holiday morning shows. And I think it was right around, it was either Thanksgiving or Christmas, I can't remember when, but it was just a matter of days after the Arbitron came out. So they did one of these typical hokey morning shows where you've got somebody from the police department or the highway patrol who joins the morning man. And the morning man is going to prove to people how bad drinking is because he's going to sit there on the air and drink one glass of booze after another until he gets drunk and stupid. And the whole moral of it is the holidays are coming up. Don't make yourself a fatality statistic by drinking and don't kill anybody else by drinking. So anyway, Howard was doing that, and I think it was just a matter of days after the numbers came out, and uh, I heard him doing this morning show with a drinking, and I called somebody, and I said, listen, here's your assignment for the morning. I want you to get in on Howard's show. Do whatever you have to do to sucker whoever screens you on the phone. You've got to get past the screener. Get on Howard's show. And when he starts drinking, I want you to razz him about the fall arbitron. And that's what she did. She used the name Phyllis, got through the screener. Howard took the call, put her on the air. And this is, in essence, what she said. Hey, Howard, you having fun this morning? I know why you're doing this. It's not just holiday safety. I think you're drinking because you saw the Arbitron and you know what's happening. You're toast, man. You're history. It's over. W4 is history. You guys lost the book huge. That's why you're drinking. Howard went wild on her, started yelling and screaming, slammed the phone down on the air. He went wild. She waited until he was sufficiently drunk to where he would not have self-control. And he took the bait. He went crazy. And I bet he remembers that phone call. In the history of Howard Stern, the narrator goes, um, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Meaning they had access to it, I'm certain, and they just wouldn't play it. Yeah. Although it's, I don't think he went straight live on the air. I mean, all of the phone calls were usually pre-recorded and played in between songs. 
yeah, he, he he mentions that at some point that that he had to do that in order to because of the technological uh, limitations at W four. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the um, the uh, the <laughs> the idea that you know he would have thrown a tantrum is perfectly yeah. plausible yeah. based on you know, how many calls we've heard. And the takeaway that I have from that is Howard's off doing yet another stale morning DJ bit that this guy describes. Oh, here's what you do. You go do this, you drink. And then, I mean, is there anything original he's doing? I mean, he didn't mention the hemorrhoids talk, but he's doing the, uh, drink. And do you really believe Howard was taking drink after drink until he got so intoxicated that he was teaching lessons? I don't. Uh, no, I don't. No, because it, it, it's uh, one thing we've established after having done after having done however many um, psychological based episodes on his what we think is NPD. We know it's NPD. I'm sorry, we don't know. We haven't diagnosed him, but we're <laughs> damn sure it is narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder. He um, he can't handle not being in control. And if you even if you didn't know the psychological terms, you would know that from listening 20 years that he needs to exercise supreme control over not just his staff, but himself and yeah. everything else. And you, you, one of your your best analogies was the uh, uh, no sauce on side means no homosexuality. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. So I, I mean, all, that's you know, it's his, all his, his fear is always that that's going to slip out, that, that Mr. Hyde is going to slip out. I wish I could play the audio. I believe I clipped it. Raven sent me the uh, the audio from recent within the last week or so, or the last two weeks, where he says he doesn't believe in bisexuality. It was that's in an interview. Not, that's not new. Yeah, he's been saying. Oh, did he recently say that too? Yeah, recently. Which and would I, get I him always in, wonder. You know, if, if he was any really to power, if he was if he was really listened to, that would get him in serious hot water these days. Well, I, yeah, and I always wonder if he's such an ally to the. LGBTQ plus community. What does he think the B stands for? It's bisexual. <laughs> and he doesn't yeah. believe they exist, yet he's their ally. Um, maybe, but anyway. Maybe, uh, maybe, he's, maybe he's just trying to come out in his own little subtle way. Well, yeah, I, I would say that insisting that bisexuality doesn't exist means mm-hmm. you can't be bisexual. So therefore, yeah. you know, I'm heterosexual. So just by saying, well, I don't believe it exists. That's why would you not believe that it exists? Isn't Ralph bisexual or suspected bisexual? Well, you don't they, believe they, that there are people out there who would just have sex with anybody. Well, there the, until until you gave up until you gave up on the subscribe sub, sub, subscription, he was dancing. They it, during the pandemic they danced around yeah. a couple times with yeah. the whole narrative of meeting Beth. But then also Ralph, I think I thought Ralph was gay when I first met him. You know, Beth, Beth says this and all this yep. nonsense about you know and like and they were dancing on. The they were dancing on the edge of the closet. Well, I remember it was Ronnie. If you tell us who you vote voted for, yeah. Ralph will tell us about his sexuality. And yeah. why is that interesting? Unless the answer is I'm not heterosexual. Right, and we know this because there was a caller that called in. We've had we played the audio before in pre- previous episodes where he caught Ralph making out with a guy. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't sound like the, 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 the like it, the, it doesn't sound remotely like a bit it sounds like a guy calling in to say he spotted ralph how can he believe that you can be born the wrong gender but you can't be physically sexually attracted to both male and female how how does he not believe that 
it's, it's something else. I have, I have, I'm flabbergasted. I mind, my mind is blown. <laughs> <laughs> my mind is blown up. Uh, the next one is called, I think this, uh, one of these is the clip that uh, continues the reading, the, uh, uh, the audio book, but I don't think it's this one. This one's 4D, wah, no support staff. But then virtually without warning, the station made a radical change. Something was missing, you know, I didn't have the right support staff, I didn't have the right thing, and lo and behold, the whole station fell apart. By the way, I think what he means by right support staff is a staff out there that is marketing him like crazy, just flooding the market with Howard Stern bumper stickers. There's a there's a, a mention in here that he was upset that there weren't um, Howard Stern I think Howard Stern bumper stickers. I don't know if we we, we covered we passed it already, but he was frustrated that there wasn't more marketing out there. But this was a sinking ship. They're not the Shamrock is not going to spend money marketing a guy when there is no chance it's going to become profitable. There's you know there there's too many other competitors who are all doing the exact same thing, only spending more money. So why would they go and invest money in Howard and say you know? We might temporarily gain an audience, uh, you know, uh, 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 we might temporarily gain um, a high Arbitron rating, but that's temporary. So anyway, they were not going, I think they were, they were saying, look, we're not going to spend another penny on this. We're switching yeah. formats. Yeah, we touched on that in the very last episode. It's been so long since we recorded it with and, oh, and, and released okay. it. But we did we did, yeah. They just they just weren't gonna subsidize it for that market being what yeah. fourth in the ratings. Uh, maybe fourth in rock. Yeah, but right. I don't That's think we're fourth in the ratings. Yeah. No, fourth, fourth, fourth in, with um, among the four stations, rock stations. W four, so. number four. That's easy to remember. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. So the next one is Elliot. But we're going straight into Elliot Gould again, guys. Wiggy goes up against uh, Steve Dahl in D Detroit uh, because uh, Steve Steve was broadcasting, I believe, still out of Chicago, and they just yep. simul they just sent the you know they syndicated which, it, basically, which Howard would later invent years yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> An insurrection among disc jockeys and other staffers at WWWW who chafed at program directors Hungate's rule led to his ouster by Shamrock in May 1980. The broadcasters voted to form a union as part of the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, AFTRA. Howard is believed to have cast a dissenting ballot. Okay, that's not a small thing, guys. That's clearly showing you he was, he well, it's not, it's not confirming it, but he was so anti-union his entire career. This just mm -hmm. confirms it. But it it kind of goes against what you'd believe because if he if he really revered Ben, which we he claims he didn't, but I I seriously doubt Ben Stern was anti-union. Right. Yeah. I I suspect he wasn't. Also, but uh, the annual uh salary for a union member was 30,000 but yeah. his is 50,000 so he goes I'm not going to become a part of a union they're going to take away from my my pay you know right but but yeah he uh he's always been the company man anyway he's mm -hmm. not going to be the union of brotherhood no god no his annual salary was beyond his starting wage reaching $50,000 before he moved on Steve Dahl yeah. returned to the Detroit Morning Wars in June. Dahl's Breakfast Club, originating from his new home base at Chicago's WLUP-FM, was picked up by Detroit's WABX-FM as part of a network-like arrangement. Howard now is up against the fellow whose tapes he had studied in Hartford. 
I was just going to point out Howard started at twenty eight thousand there, didn't he? Something like that. Yeah, and Ben told him ask so, for uh, ask for more. I believe. Okay, so so maybe he asked for thirty, or I forget exactly what it was. So how is it that within the span of not even one year, he was only there for ten months? Did his salary when he was number four in Rock get bumped up to fifty thousand dollars? He hasn't even been there for a year, and and he he only he did nothing to improve the ratings. So how the heck did he get a raise? Uh, that's that's staggering to me. I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, and then when he gets to um, DC 101, I believe his starting was 40. Right. Uh, yeah. He, he was, was going to he, he's actually taking a pay. He's not taking a pay cut, but he's accepting a lower offer. That right. would, I mean, pay, a pay cut is when your own employer cuts your salary, not when someone else gives right. you a shittier one and you're stupid enough to accept it. Um, but uh, he the there's so it's, it continues further down that the next paragraph, uh, paragraph number two on page 60. Did you want to read that? Sure. <clears throat> a fourth rock station also crashed into the field. The launch of WLLZ Detroit's wheels further fueled speculation that the end was near for WWWW's rock format. Howard insisted that his station was not giving him adequate promotion in the form of bumper stickers and other displays, a mm -hmm. sign that management was saving its marketing dollars for another morning man or a new format. His ego was expanding. Wait a minute. His ego was expanding. <laughs> I thought we said his ego had been thrown out. That's why he talks about hemorrhoids. <laughs> exactly. I think there might be a factual error here. Okay. His ego was expanding, as was seen when the Republican National Convention moved into Detroit that summer to nominate Ronald Reagan for president. A discussion on air about the need to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment led to a bra burning outside the station. When a news photographer covered the convention, covering the convention, asked Beller to be in the pictures. Beller is, um, her name hasn't been mentioned for a while. She's Howard's newswoman, I believe, right? Yes, I think so. Uh, asked, asked Howard's newswoman to be in the pictures. Howard became furious. He let me know that he was the star of the show, Beller recalled. <laughs> and she go figure, why is this out of the audiobook? This is something I'd absolutely include. I always, always yeah. wonder about this. Who makes the the editorial decision to decide to leave this stuff out when it actually that's, is very crucial? Right. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know who would have done who would have done that. I'm sure Colford would have said every word's important. Don't cut well, out yeah. anything. Oh, certainly. And, 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 but I mean, I do remember because I used to work in the library system back in the day. Uh, audio, audio books were mostly abridged. I mean, the real, mm -hmm. the really complete ones were massive. Like they were almost like, um, <laughs> they were plastic sets and you had like, like eight and 10 cassettes to get through. Yeah. Them I was going to say, was it the confines of being on a cassette that you had to flip Ab sides and so absolutely. on? Absolutely. Yeah. And they weren't going to spring for a 90 minute cassette with 45 minutes on each side. It was going to be one of those 60 minute jobs. So, right. um, the next audio comes in, uh, let me see what I got here. John Lennon, who. For all of Howard's frustrations, he continued to express the belief that he could hit the top of the ratings. On the December morning after John Lennon was shot to death outside his New York home, Howard condemned the alleged killer, Mark David Chapman. Unlike most grieving fans and rock jocks, he hammered at the slaying itself more than he joined other stations in mourning the former Beatles' death. That night, over dinner, he bragged to Dwight Douglas, the consultant who had led him to WWWW, about his approach to the Lennon story. Douglas argued that Howard should switch to a more secure, successful station, but Howard wanted to stay in Detroit. 
He was developing an effective act and sought more time to work on it. Okay, guys, we've got audio someone recorded, and I'll give the guy credit. His channel, is it's called Mark Sovell, S-O-V-E-L, and he recorded uh, the December 9th, 1980 broadcast, the uh, 18 or 20, 20, 22 minutes of uh, on W4, Howard talking about John Lennon. So we're going to play some of it because it's got some great, it's got some great, obs- we've we made some observations about it, and I think you'll notice as soon as you hear it, too. Mornings of my life, I'll never forget this morning. People always ask us, what'd you do, what'd you do the day you found out that John Lennon was shot to death? So like, what, where were you when you found out John Kennedy had died? Where were you when Bobby Kennedy had died? Where were you when John Lennon? <laughs> you're, you're laughing already. Yeah, because he already flubbed it. He already, he goes, people always ask, where were you when John Lennon was, it had just happened. People do not always ask that. He meant to say John Kennedy, but he'd yeah. already, he'd already uh, flubbed it. He got the word. John Lennon is dead. Lennon shot late last night as he and his wife Yoko Ono entered the New York City apartment building where they lived. Lennon pronounced dead at a nearby hospital shortly thereafter. And police have charged scum of the earth Mark Chapman of Hawaii with murder. It's not known what the motive for the attack was. Former Beatle Paul McCartney is in seclusion at his farmhouse in southern England. The company has described Lennon's former riding partner as being in deep, deep shock over the death. Former Beatle Ringo Starr broke off a vacation. And uh, George Harrison described today as deeply upset, as we all are. How does one handle the death of someone as great as John Lennon? You know, everything this radio station is about, every song we play is, has been influenced by the Beatles. <laughs> Getting whiny. <laughs> I, I loved how the affectation, the Barry mm. White, the soulful struts of Barry White mm. here, here on, you know, Kicks FM, uh, that gets completely thrown away by, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like just, just taken off his mantle, taken off his shoulders. And now he's back to whiny Long Island Howard. Yeah. And, and he also, like, I don't know if anybody else is listening, but I was just telling Ben before we, we cut into this that um, he, it, it's he doesn't sound <laughs> broken up in the slightest. He doesn't sound really. It sounds like he's put on like distraught, and yet he goes on about how he used to go to uh, dance like a, 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 uh, sorry DJ at like holiday discos or whatever, like with with Beatles records. <laughs> oh, <and laughs> so, how hyena's mom would bond over yeah. with the Beatles, right? He introduced and, and, her to it. I remember specifically at the time I was five. I was going to be. I was almost six years old, and um, I remember people were definitely in shock. I mean, my sister was just 10 years older than me. And so I remember asking her about it many, many years later. And she goes, almost everybody was, if not in, if not crying, they were definitely like, they were shocked that it could happen and that it did happen. It's just because it's a beetle really. It was like royalty in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were so Mm -hmm. revered even uh, during at the height of the punk movement and the new romantics, the Beatles were, you know, the alpha and the omega and he was still so young, and he was just coming back from a long hiatus of recording music. I think he did five years in in the seventies, not releasing anything, just being a as what he called a house husband. Anyway, uh, well, so I'll play a little bit more of this because I, I just, and then we'll go into the next clip. Trick, come on, that's that's the Beatles again, and 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 you go back and you play the Stones, and you play. I don't know anybody. If I could pick out everybody, everybody's been influenced by the Beatles, all of the greats. 
<laughs> Name them. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's that's a little you bit. You couldn't of that ask guy. him to name you, you. You could not ask him to name three bands right now. No, this is a rock DJ. Name three yeah. bands influenced by the Beatles, Rolling Stones. Well, they're contemporaries. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm so, out. I don't know. Yeah, Cream. <laughs> He's gonna go with the rest of them. The uh, next one is called Wan. Nobody wants to hire me. Wan. It's a really short clip. The other Detroit stations showed no serious interest in hiring him. And the next one is called um, Dwight Douglas and Denise Oliver go oh, to this, bat this, with that golf. A, that might need some explanation. So he What's, wanted. So his country. So his station's going country. Yeah, well, there's lots more of that with, okay. uh, coming up. Okay. Yeah, don't worry, but we got that definitely covered. On page 61, it follows, guys. Uh, even as Howard laid out his ambition to s achieve glory in Detroit, Shamrock was preparing to silence the rock at www. The last straw was the release in early January 1981 of the October-November ratings. The new station, WLLZ, had come out of nowhere to score 4.6 share of the listening audience behind WRIF's 4.7. WWW and Howard's show had sunk to a miserable 1.6. Wow. So he's <laughs> getting one third of the listeners. Yep. That the absolutely. other station, that the brand new station was getting. Yep. And uh, on January 18th, the Sunday morning, Howard awakened to hear that his station had gone country after all. For a few days, he went to work and grudgingly played the records he had to. Um, the and then there's a clip. I I I don't think I I was gonna clip it. And then I said I don't need to. Basically, it says he opened up his microphone at the end of one program and said that was Waylon Jennings, my man Waylon. Y'all know Waylon. Y'all like to fuck sheep now, don't you? And then his colleagues froze until they realized he had not adjusted the microphone so that listeners could hear him. Um, but he does con continue by saying, I have no tolerance for country music, he later told a reporter. I mean, the Judds remind me of Nazi women. I feel they would kill me. <laughs> God. Everything like, and, reminds him of Nazis. Of course. But but what what he doesn't what he what stupid Howard didn't understand then or now is that the country music genre is such a massive market. It's such a slice of the US yeah. market and yeah. worldwide. Loads of people listen to country outside of the United States, yeah. especially in England. Um it was, I mean, Tom Jones mark remarketed himself as a country singer in the 70s and 80s when his career started yeah. to go downhill. Country was about to get a huge, it was supposed to be, it was, it was going to be a huge part of the pop culture at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and fashion. Is, yep. But then, but, but um, then the, the jump to pop country, like the tra the Randy Travis made it made it uh, a lot more popular. The Judds obviously did, but then also uh, Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks was really yep, responsible yep. for bringing it to mainstream radio as well as you know just country getting off country stations and going into mainstream radio. Yeah, this um, this, so. uh, this this does throw uh, the other guys claim that in November the ratings came out. Um, this says they came out in January. So uh, covering the period that this guy says that they covered. So anyway, he's got his dates wrong. Obviously, he wasn't Howard wasn't doing a drinking for the holidays thing in January, uh, mm -hmm. although maybe he he would because he does do very belate belated bits. Uh, you know, he does his year in review well into March of the following year. So maybe he was still doing drinking for the holidays bits in January. The other Detroit station showed no serious interest in hiring him. I thought Stern was trying to copy Dahl, said Al Wilson, who was then general manager of WABX, the local outlet for Dahl's program. When Howard suggested to Wilson at a party that maybe they should talk about working together. By the way, so he's talking to the guy 
who is the uh, general manager of the station that is running the program of the guy who Howard is actively copying. Yeah. And he tells the guy, we should work together. As if this guy doesn't realize you're stealing my guy's act. Yeah. That's the one person you shouldn't be talking to is yes. the guy who knows you're stealing his act. 100%. So uh, when Howard suggested to Wilson at a party, what was Howard doing at a party, by the way, <laughs> that maybe they should talk about working together, the executive politely agreed, then turned to his wife and said, that guy's not so hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's I, I'm I'm sure there was a lot more said beyond that, but um, the uh, that goes into the next clip that I've got of uh, Mr. Gould. Howard hunkered down at his home in Southfield and considered his next move. Douglas plotted to put him on WWDC in Washington. The rock outlet known as DC 101 had a new program director, Denise Oliver, and a new general manager, Jeff Labar. They wanted to launch an attention-grabbing morning show. Denise and I had dinner with Jeff about a week after <laughs> W4 went country, Douglas recalled. He had never even heard Howard's tape. Okay, so let's before we go into that, first he gets it wrong. It's Goff, not Jeff. That's just something they, they didn't print it <laughs> properly. That's funny. Um, it said he finally said yes at about 11 o'clock. Uh, and then the next clip, I don't know if I clipped it, but uh, I, I, either way, it says here Labar had to only had to offer only forty thousand a year. Oh no, I do got it. I have I, I do have it. One second, uh, it's just uh, played out of order. Let me just. Labar had to offer only forty thousand dollars a year, far less than a top morning man earned in those days. After broadcasting in Detroit for nine months, Howard agreed to take the job principally because Washington was closer to his ultimate destination, New York. Okay, now let me read the last one because I laughed about this. It dovetails into something way later. A farewell party was held in the Detroit suburbs. It was a sedate gathering mainly of conservatively dressed people who were Howard's real friends in the area. Those rock and roll station mates who customarily arrived for a bash no earlier than 10.30 or 11 p.m. walked into a party that was breaking up. <laughs> Entertainment <laughs> was provided by a magician. Jeez, how square the rockers snickered. His final trick was to cut up a newspaper so that it opened up to read goodbye and good luck Howard and Allison so the rock and roll DJ didn't even make it to midnight at his own party yeah hey, um, I want to say something too about this yeah. $40,000 a year salary in DC yeah. you know how Howard always says that the grease man came along and stole his act not only did he take over Howard's old slot after Howard left but he stole Howard's act and so on so in 1979 no 1980 this was Mm -hmm. Howard's making $40,000 a year. Yeah. So I, I just want to point out that the grease man in, uh, um, he was named top radio personality in the United States for 1990 or sorry, 1977 and 1980. And mm -hmm. in 1979, he signed a five year contract worth $1 million. So he was making five times what Howard made, mm -hmm. uh, in the same time that Howard claims he was stealing from him. Yes. And he was already named personality of the year twice. Yeah. It's amazing how that happens, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the, but the it, next you know, it's, a, it, oh, it's helpful to, um, when you take Howard's version of history, you're, mm -hmm. it's always going to be wrong. You know, yeah. it's always going to be, wow, everybody stole from you instead of the other way around. This next clip is called guys, uh, husband of the year award goes to, 
Allison turns on the radio. She gets she gets up, goes into the next room, turns on the radio, and she's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> because she had just gotten a job too. And uh, she was, and she got a real good job. She yeah. was working at some family counseling place, helping like schizoids, people who burn themselves with their own cigarettes. She considered that a good job. <laughs> it's like great. She's gonna help people who burn themselves. She was excited. I yeah, have people. I have patients who burn themselves. Yeah, so she was like flipping out because like she it finally hit her what a dope her husband was you know and like, hey, what a mess he had made of her career yeah and like what is she doing with me quite frankly because i want to get out of detroit now someone's was giving me a hard time she didn't like it there she liked it oh she did yeah she was giving me a hard time like how can we you know i want to stay in detroit for at least two years i want to get out who wants to be in detroit at a loser station so this was like a blessing for me oh you were looking for this. Yeah. So this idiot cavalierly says, I I'm look, I'm just I got it's where I need to go. Not it's, you're you're not so important. Your job and what you feel like you need to do is not nearly as important as my career. Yeah, this woman who has a master's degree. Yep. Whose resume is looking really bad because here she goes and starts a job and then months later leaves, starts another job, months later leaves. Yep. Just because he's not liking the 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 country, the format change, or the you know, or because he's floundering. Let's be honest. Not, nothing to do with country. Nothing to do with any of the music. It really is about I'm not big enough here. Yeah, and it it really doesn't sound like they're in a marriage. It sounds no. like he's in this for himself, and yeah. you had better support me, mm -hmm. or else you know you're my enemy. Never any consideration for her career. Nothing. Absolutely none. Uh, next clip is called Other W4 Staffers on Wiggy. I think he was developing his act, and given time, the act would have been you know, bigger and better. But I think he had to get down to D.C. before it really congealed and came together. Congealed might be exactly the right word for Howard. What performs well in Pittsburgh doesn't necessarily go over well in Detroit. You just don't know. I mean, he didn't really have that much support. If he had had a co-host, someone to help him, would that have helped him? Don't know. Was he blue-collar enough? Probably not. Did he bring that East Coast edgy shit with him? You bet. Detroit's a backward town, so it takes a little bit more time for things to catch up. Anything takes time to grow, and with the demise of W4 going country, Howard, I don't think, had enough time in the market to make his thing work for him. Back when Howard was at W4, he was not a ratings leader. It's when he left us and went to Washington is where his career took off. Now, the thing is, he was never going to be blue collar enough for Detroit. He sounded like a whiny little bitch mm -hmm. and he just didn't sound like a, they want, they wanted, you know, this is, this is absolutely in the, in the, in 1980, a blue collar auto manufacturing town, you know, really just going, this is, you know, the hub of automotive engineering. Um, and you, you want someone really into the music and I can imagine, I can imagine him playing Pablo Cruz in w, at W4 and then screw the country and Western change. It's just a matter of he, he just, he never would have worked there. I don't think. Yeah. It was I would love fit. to know what I, I, you know, he obviously is not and has never been blue collar, mm -hmm. but I would love to know what, I, I would love to know what to their ear he sounded like, like, you know, we hear a phony guy, we mm -hmm. hear, um, you know, him doing this fake voice and trying to be poised and so yep. on. Yeah. But um, 
they, by, by blue collar, I mean, I wonder if they just mean like he you listen to him and you know he obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know any of the venues. He would never go see one of these performers. Nope. He sounds completely inauthentic when he speaks. Yep. Um, and also, you know, you can hear this guy's Detroit accent coming out or it's I don't know, it's some kind of Midwestern accent coming out mm-hmm. as he speaks, which how it's just like oil and vinegar. Vinegar and water, I mean, hearing these two. Sorry. Vinegar and water, hearing these two. Um, am I saying that right? <laughs> Oil. So, were you thinking vinaigrette? Clashing thing. <laughs> yeah, vinaigrette. It's like vinaigrette listening to these two different accents. Um, but you, you hear they are not compatible accents. Uh, well, no. God, no. I mean, like, outside of – and I hate to sound – I hate to sound, like, uh, provincial like this, but uh, I think there is a definite – it's I, I I'm trying I'm trying to I always have to go back to Johnny Carson who was you know a guy from Nebraska same as Dick Cavett went over to New York to make it big did make it big went over to California to continue to make it even bigger and the country from start to fit like from left to right most of the country loved him why because he was apolitical even though he made fun of political figures he didn't make fun of political parties he made a point to you know stick fingers in pomposity as opposed to you know poke holes in pomposity as opposed to um projecting some kind of uh bias one way or the other and then he but he 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 shouldn't have. He shouldn't have been able to market himself to the Hollywood elite because he's from Nebraska. But ma- he managed to because he was talented and he was funny and he had already, when we, unlike Shuley, he'd really paid his dues writing for the Red Skelton show and other other you know things and doing a lot of work to get to where he was. So with Howard, he, there was no way he was ever going to transition really to becoming a Midwest sensation. And even on the West coast, when he did get his move to uh, uh, California and LA Spanish stations, were going to beat the piss out of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, entertainment was a lot more regional back then. Very so much so you, you know, it would be, it would stand out that you're hearing an accent on talking about local high schools and stuff. That's not yeah. from your region mm-hmm. and um, you know, mispronouncing all the words and so on. Um, so, but the blue collar thing, I believe that they talk about, I think that Joe from Chicago at his first job talked about the blue collar aesthetic, Mm -hmm. audio aesthetic that they were going for. Um, I think they said something like a blue collar, um, bar room sound of music that they were playing. And, you know, there's nothing blue collar about Howard. No, you can hear it in his voice. He just sound, he doesn't, he doesn't sound like he's lifted a hammer in his life. Right now, like he worked at the hammer, plumbing he, supply he, shop for a little while, but that's about it. Yeah, right. And um, like he looks like if he picked up a hammer, he would just start sawing something. Um, as a result, now this next yes. one is called uh, Wiggy claims DC 101 cut his salary. He 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 doesn't explain it properly. I began to look for jobs, and uh, that's when I started hearing from Larry Berger at PLJ. But he says, I'm watching you. You're good, but I'm going to watch you some more. No, fuck you. What do you mean you're watching me? i got to get out of here. I want to go to New York. That's I know I can handle it. I'll keep watching you. So I had offers from um, Chicago, WXRT, one in Toronto, Chum FM, and uh, then this station in Washington, BC 101, that was under new management, uh, new program director. Dwight was a consultant. White, uh, Douglas again. And this guy got off the bar, the general manager, who didn't appear to want to hire me. And um, 
cut my salary, the whole thing from what I was making in Detroit, but I knew to go to Washington. Go to Washington, make a hit there, I'll get to New York. My goal was New York. <laughs> cut my salary. <laughs> I just yeah, love the way you explain that. It's so stupid. I, I I really don't think that he had offers from Chicago and from no. Chicago's gotta be a much bigger market than Detroit. Um just one sec. I'm going to get the uh, the uh, Brian Linehan uh, interview. We've used it, but he goes on to that Chum FM uh, Toronto story a little bit more. Guys, um, we've got a, a little segment here. We played before a section of this interview, but not this part where he talks about going to Toronto uh, to go a little further into that. So here's the clip. The motion picture is private parts. The star is Howard Stern. I sat down, I shook hands, and you said, I almost worked in Toronto. It's true. Uh, when I was in Detroit and my station went country, which was a real bad time in my life, I got a, an offer. I th was the station Chum FM? Is that that's yeah? That was the station. I, I was in touch with the program director there, and he said to me, uh, he called me up and he said, uh, "I've heard about you. I've heard what you're doing in Detroit. I think you'd be good here." And he offered me a job, and I said, "Do, do I get paid in American money or Canadian money?" He said, uh, "Canadian money." I said, "Wow, that's such a major commitment. Wow, that's a whole different world." I was like, my hands were shaking, and I actually uh, thought very seriously about uh, moving there. I thought it would have been uh, a good place for me, but uh, I went to Washington D.C. Sort of my goal was to get to New York, so it seemed like I was getting geographically closer. So that's why I went that way. Now, Howard, you know that I know that you found out what the Canadian dollar was worth. Yes. Yes. Let's not make. I ran out of town. Artistic. You found out the Canadian dollar wasn't worth a dollar, right? I found. Yeah. I found out. You know what? You, you're absolutely right. I found out. Wait a second. This is not such a good way to make a living. No. It just freaked me out. It was like I said. It hit me that it was a whole other country. You know. I was like, wow. I was doing radio in another country. He was never going to move to Toronto. <laughs> that fucking idiot. How is that? I almost worked in Toronto. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. I considered it for a split second. Decided absolutely not. Yeah. How is that almost working in Toronto? Yeah, exactly. Maybe I, you know, I was offered a job in Toronto once. Maybe yeah. you could say that, but I almost worked there once. Oh, really? I, I, yeah. <laughs> I considered it for a split second and said no. Exactly. Uh, the next one, uh, this next one is a, a short, a bit of a long clip, guys. After two weeks of whining to Allison, this happens. Former DC 101 program director, Denise Oliver. One day, I got a tape from Dwight. He consulted a station in Detroit, and one of his competitors he thought was really good. This fellow worked on W4 in Detroit, and it was Howard Stern. So when Dwight sent me the tape, I thought it was something really different, really unique. And so I called Howard, and I asked him to come down to Washington so I could interview him. So he came down on a weekend because he, you know, had a day job. And we actually spent a really nice day. I, I wanted to show Washington off to its best advantage because it really is a beautiful city and I was trying to get him interested in coming to work there. So we went all around Washington and including Georgetown where I lost my keys in my car. And that's where I learned that he was very gentlemanly. He took it well until <laughs> I got the keys out of the car. And uh, we hit it off very well. And he said, you know, gee, I really like your plans for the station. It sounds like it's going to be great. This is a beautiful city. I'd love to live here. He said, There's just one problem. And I said, why? He said, well, I promised my wife, Allison, that we wouldn't move again so soon. We've only been in Detroit for eight months. And she's kind of getting settled. And we're making friends. And we like the neighborhood. And I don't know. I'll discuss it. I said, okay. We keep she keep in mind. He said we like the neighborhood, not she. So yeah. when when Denise recounts this, I mean she's including him in the whole. She, I mean she's. I, I, and you have to. I'm I'm assuming she's trustworthy. Trust more trustworthy than Howard is. He says she liked the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just amazing. It, it really is just amazing that she heard 
maybe she heard some clips. All she really did was just take the word of a guy who said, oh, yeah, we have a competitor. He's pretty good. You should check him out. Yeah. The the guy who hired him ultimately hadn't didn't even bother to listen to his tape. That <laughs> she really shows you like, oh, I'm really dying to start this exciting morning show. Don't you want to hear the guy that you're going to put in the driver's seat? Nah, yeah. it's not that important. No. Hmm. Hey, I'll help you come. I'd like to have him. So he went back to Detroit and he called me and he said, Denise, I'm really sorry. I'd love the gig, but you know, I promised my wife that I wasn't going to leave so soon, and she really doesn't want to leave Detroit. I said, well. I'm really sorry, too, but thanks a lot. It was great to meet you. And then I went off to look for other people. About two weeks later, I got a phone call on the weekend, and he said, is that job still open? And I said, yeah, why do you ask? He said, I woke up this morning, and my station was playing country music. And then he came down, and he joined me. So when I went on to D.C., I, I vowed. I said, I will not hold back a fucking thing. I am going to go for the jugular. Whatever it takes to be number one in that town, it's going to happen. I am going to let it all fly. I'm going to work day and night, and it's going to work. Now, I don't, uh, I don't doubt that he did work quite a lot harder when he got into these larger markets, and you know, realized that this is it's a do or die. Like, if I'm going to make it, I've got to do whatever I can to make sure that this happens. But ultimately, it hinges on meeting Don Buckwald and meeting Robin. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Pairing with Robin is is huge because he didn't have anybody to play off of right uh, the entire time, and he needs somebody. You know, yes. he he needs somebody to react and um, be the applause and be the laughter and so on. Well, but then we, also this person, they, they they did have more. They were crafting a morning zoo. They want to act like they were creating something new, but they were mm -hmm. merely duplicating morning zoo, which was a phenomenon coming out of Florida. You know, it's it's an interesting parallel. We Ray, Raven and I covered a breakdown uh, last night, actually, and uh, the it's all about the uh, Sirius XM has created a studio in Miami, which we think they're just we're going to reduce their presence in New York, maintain like a, a ba basic studio in New York because the cost of having the office space is way Real too estate. high. Yeah. Yeah. And so getting maybe a tax break by having it in Florida, why not? And there's a huge Latin community down there. So you're gonna, mm. I think, I think it's a smart move in my, in my personal opinion, but because Howard's got a residence down there and they know this, they can force him to do what he would do. Go from long Island in the limo to Manhattan getting mm. driven. What's the difference being driven from South beach to Miami. So he's pissed. He had to go down there without Beth for one day and he started bitching about, ah, well, you know, I don't, I'm in a hotel and I don't like this and da, 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 and, and then, it, but it, it reminded me of him going to the Arsenio show and requiring Bowie to be on the plane with him as his, as his, <laughs> as his Linus security blanket. Yeah. And yeah. Robin, like at almost every step of the way, he needs someone to be there with him as his blanket. Well, yeah. Uh, that's the very first thing that's fake about private parts is Howard getting on a boarding a plane by himself yeah. and striking up a conversation with the passenger next to him. He would right. never get a port on a plane by himself. No, God, no. And so, uh, we're going to go into, um, the first part of the next chapters, chapter seven, DC one Oh one with queen Ophelia. Launching Howard Stern at Washington's DC one Oh one left only one key detail in solidifying the station's new morning show, hiring Robin Quivers as newscaster. 
Program director Denise Oliver had a tape of Robin presenting the news at Baltimore's WFBR AM with Johnny Walker, the station's irreverent morning man. Walker joked and Robin responded with a rich, jolly laugh. Oliver shared the tape with consultant Dwight Douglas, and he thought the laugh was wonderful. In addition, Robin was black. This would make her a bonus in a regulated industry that routinely sought to head off government concerns about minority employment by having at least a few persons of color in on-air positions. She also could serve as an effective counterweight to Howard's often racially charged antics. Management liked the idea of pairing the controversial Jewish guy from New York with the black woman from nearby Baltimore. What do they say in politics? It's a balanced, it's a perfect, it's a balanced ticket. Mm, yeah, right. 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 These it, it's it's really funny because Howard fled blacks, you know, yes. the Jewish the Jewish New Yorker fled blacks and Robin went to school with Jews and did not like them. You know, <laughs> but, um, but now recently <laughs> the Knicks is pissed off because the Knicks don't acknowledge him at the Knicks games. That yeah, became a news yeah. story. They the got black guys should go and say hi to him and give him a fist bump. But they go to Spike yeah. Lee instead. Interesting. But Robin uh, Robin benefited from being black very early on in her career. I mean, it, it, I it's funny how explicit he is about it here. Yes. Well, uh, give me give me a moment. I'm going to actually uh, go into something somebody sent me um that that's a fan of the show and he is got he's in the military he's got military background i asked him a little bit more about uh robin and the 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 air force thing so this is um okay let me this is from our, our buddy ronnie percy i've been meaning to put this in and i need i knew i needed to put this here where the robin thing is because we we talked earlier when we when you and i covered over at radio gunk we covered the original quivers of life before i was <laughs> deleted from the uh from the uh the blu-ray <laughs> so uh and so you became um, allison that's right um robin was in the air force and your 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 reasoning at the time was it, it, it was post Vietnam. The military was, was really suffering and from an identity crisis and a PR crisis after the, the failure of Vietnam and that they wanted to have more. Um, they were willing to give Robin a little more leeway, possibly because she was a woman and she was black mm -hmm. in, you know, in the Air Force where it could be maybe a little more lax anyway than the than the Marines or in mm -hmm. the in the uh, Navy, perhaps. So this is what Ronnie says. Uh, so bear with us, bear with us, guys. Let me start by saying this. I first entered the military in 1989. I was a college football player who had a knee injury early in my college career. I had a girlfriend at the time who was at the Air Force and was stationed at a base in uh, Blytheville, Arizona. And I visited her, visited her there several times as I was recovering. Before I joined the Army, I com contemplated joining her in the Air Force, as my dad and a couple of uncles had served there as well. The overwhelming issue I had then was, and that continued f for me at the with the AF, was that there was a complete lack of respect for the rank and rank structure. So he's he's corroborating some of what Robin's saying here. Yeah. Hmm. Um. I remember her. Be I remember being at her office one day, and one of the captains called her by her first name, and she responded to him by his first name. She was an, an enlisted service member. So her assertion that someone was blinded by the bling of her rank is nonsense. So as I start with page 93, I will first say, this is it from Robin's book, I will yeah. first say that 
a nurse in the Navy would have never scrubbed the front steps of her quarters with a toothbrush because she had not folded her laundry properly. Enlisted personnel may face some harsh punishments, but officers are never treated that way. Officers are never victims of barrack inspections unless they are in a training environment, but the Air Force and the Navy are known for being the most lax of any branch. Their uniform and room standards are laughable. The Air Force members whether officer or enlisted, all live the same way. If they live in the barracks, they have some maid services that come through and tidy their rooms up on a daily basis. They rarely, if ever, go on bivouac, what we call going to the field, and everyone learns to salute in March. The assertion that they did not salute because it was too windy is also nonsense, as there are weather issues most training, uh, if, as if there are weather issues, most training will take place indoors, and for marching, even today, can be conducted in a gym. The drinking and being plied with brew, booze is something that I also do not believe because in a training environment you are normally encouraged not to drink because you spend a lot of time in class and especially as medical people they need them to focus and pay attention that is not to say that trainees can't go to a local bar either on post or off and drink but most medical programs are extremely difficult due to the responsibility of their jobs okay that's the first part of it um the uh, I'm going to keep going here. I, I'm sorry, guys, to make this so long-winded, but he he read he made a really good write-up. Um, I was stationed in Korea several times at the Air Force Base in Osan, so I've seen them in action and know how they operate. Um, the uh, most enlisted people care less about lieutenants. We all know that they have little to no power. If you bump into one off base at a fast food place, you may apologize, but mainly you really do not care because they cannot affect you one way or the other. Let me also add that medical lieutenants and captains are the bottom of the barrel as it relates to people respecting their authority. <laughs> the only real truth is that she speaks to that she speaks to is that there is a clear distinction between enlisted and person personnel and officers. We rarely mix, and dating is not only frowned upon, but it will result in severe disciplinary action. It does not mean it won't happen, but when it does, both parties know that they're risking their careers. As a black man, I have seen racism, racism, racism in the military as it still exists today, but back in the 70s, it was a lot worse. Her assertion that she showed this major a lack of respect is laughable because a major is considered a field-grade officer, which means they have the ability to give punishments that can take away rank and money. They may tolerate nonsense for a short period of time, but blatant disrespect will not go unchecked. She was probably not allowed to work overnight shifts as a protection to the patients. I would imagine she was a lazy piece of crap <laughs> back then and was considered a liability. Her prior experience as a nurse would have gotten her some wiggle room but I having but being disrespectful and lazy would have had her standing in front of a colonel, which the hospitals are full of. Um, uh, in terms of falling upward, uh, officers receive automatic promotions. The standard time is to go from to go from zero to one to zero to three is about four years. Um, in the officer world, lieutenants are just like privates are to the enlisted. They are just tools to get a job done. You do not trust them with a lot because they are new to the military. You just try to keep them from hurting themselves or someone else. Uh, I was an airborne ranger who served in the uh, – I was an airborne ranger who served in the 82nd ABN 3rd Ranger Battalion. I was an Apache crew chief, crew chief and served on commando teams for the bulk of my career. I've had several friends who served in the Air Force, and although she is considered a veteran, she was – then and now just as a lazy, dumb, status-seeking idiot. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, I love this, thanks, but Ronnie. why has she gone this entire career without someone like him calling into the show and calling her out? That's what I'd like to know. Uh, unless, you know, who is it that goes to the military for the most part? Um, a lot a lot of uh, people with fewer options than most. Yeah, usually. And like yeah. people, you know, like, and there's no shame. To me, there's no shame in it because... You get after what twenty years a full pension. 
Yeah, and you you could use you could work towards college. You could do a lot lots of different things. You there's, could become an, you could there's become strategic an reasons to go into it. Yeah, absolutely. You could become an engineer and then still work, and then you're still getting a pension. It's it's not mm-hmm. it's not a, an awful thing to do. It also, if you're in the right branch, I suppose it teaches you discipline, teaches you self discipline, especially. Uh, there's all these things working with groups. It's a it's a wonderful way in some ways to, you know learn to work with others let's be honest and somebody like robin would have <laughs> that would have been an impossibility the way she is yeah if we could spend one more second here on robin yeah. i just recently heard and this is exactly what i believe happened yeah but i just recently heard about this false memory syndrome that became really big in the 1990s and it says here robin's book came out in 95 i believe it was during April the late 1990s Okay. During the late 1990s, there were multiple lawsuits in the United States in which psychiatrists and psychologists were successfully sued or settled out of court on the charge of propagating iatrogenic, which is uh, induced in medical settings, I believe, memories of childhood sexual abuse, incest, and satanic ritual abuse. And it's the uh, uh, in the false memory syndrome that's talked about in Wikipedia. So this was... Uh, uh, a popular thing in the 1990s was the, under what's un, the under the this was under this is Wikipedia's false memory syndrome page. Um, but if you type in 1990s false memories of childhood trauma, mm-hmm. British Psychological Society brings up an article: false memories of childhood abuse. Okay. The Guardian families are still living the nightmares of false memories. Okay, so uh, it's, the there's, New York there's, Times last year. There's, there's, there's loads of citations. Yeah, so this is from the. I guess it was called the Recovered Memory Movement, mm-hmm. um, and that was the New York Times did a story on it last year. The Forgotten Lessons of the Recovered Memory Movement. Interesting. And I believe, and I've said this, that Robin's unearthed memories of childhood trauma were planted memories of childhood trauma. They're not unearthed or created. That uh, they're, they're they're created, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you you don't find yourself as the only person in a room full of people who has no trauma to share suddenly speaks up and says, oh yeah, my dad tried something on me once. And they say, wow, that you got some nerve, you're a badass, whatever. But I mean, but not just, not just only says it once, but alone to the person, the only person who can corroborate this, who may or may yeah. not exist because she may not have done this to begin with. Yeah, you're like right. you know, you you can only believe so much of Robin's book. It's such science and fiction, it, and that it's timed to. Well, he's got Alzheimer's, so of course he doesn't remember doing it. Yep, you know. Yep. So, but uh, I really believe that Robin. I mean, if you know of someone who is easily swayed by a psychologist and some fake movement, mm-hmm. who would it be? Robin Ophelia Quivers and Howard yep. Stern too. Um, yep. so anyway, I do believe, and I've said this many times that that mm-hmm. did not really happen that this was um this was her fitting in into this cult that she was involved with in in uh san francisco yeah well i think yeah, there's there's absolutely because that's where all that so-called memory was recovered um the uh, uh i keep saying it's landmark form now but it was est back then and um the she was paying and est requires people to pay for it's almost like auditing you know for the uh you know you have to pay for if you're a Scientologist, you have to pay for to get to certain theta eleven, theta theta seven. You know, you want you got to pay a lot of money for these to get audited and what have you. Um, and I think that 
with her, like we, we postulated at the time, it was like the mid nineties. Everybody was coming up with these Roseanne, books that Roseanne, yep. Fran Drescher, the two big names that I remember, but Fran Drescher talks about actually being raped. You know, mm-hmm. by by a complete mm-hmm. stranger, if if I can't recall, it wasn't date rape. It was in. I think it was, it was two com- men broke in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then she had she was on the show, and Howard interviewed her about it. And I'm sure he wanted to get the titillating aspects of it. No, he didn't give a fuck about you know what this might do to your interview subject, but also figuring if she's written a book about it, she should be willing to talk about it. Uh, you know, in a radio th- interview. So I'm not going to give him shit for that. But um, with either way, the there's the, the what I also love is the. We talked about the conflicting ver- versions of Howard's story. There's loads of conflicting versions about Robin's story as well. So we're going to go into some of those, and I'm going to read a section of her book that I got. I threw out my copy, but thankfully there's an online copy. You threw uh, out your copy? I threw it out. I just didn't want to even have it in my collection. Wow. I, looked, I just I was just revolted it is, when I covered it. It is the darkest book that I own. And you own like it, it, the, you own the book of Satan. I'm sure. <laughs> <No. laughs> well, yeah, that's where she got some of her ideas about what happened to her child and her child. Maybe. Uh, so this, no, I remember reading yeah. this book. Going, it this is dark. Yeah. And uh, and and I don't think that she. Re- I, don't, I don't think Robin ever. And I don't think anybody who has ever like joked about the book, um, Jackie making fun of it and so on, ever really gotten to just how dark it is. I mean, Robin's admits her philosophy in high school was kill Whitey. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a lot of uh, darkness, and, and that 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 she learned from um, Muhammad Ali. There's a lot of money to be made if you can make white people happy. I mean, there's a there's a lot of uh, hostility in this book. Well, anyway, I don't the, want to get back on that book. No worries, no worries. Well, the next clip is called "Robin Gets Plucked Out of Obscurity." Her decision to join Howard gave added kick to his show and would catapult her out of obscurity. Okay, now we're going to go with Denise Oliver's memories of Robin, and then we'll talk about what Robin says about her in the book. In the early 80s and in the 70s, you know, no matter what kind of station you were, no matter what kind of music you played, you had to play the news for your your FCC license. So I had to find a news person, and um, I spoke to one woman who was promising, and um, I don't remember her name, actually. But um, she, for some reason or other, couldn't come. And I remembered a woman I had met when I was in Baltimore. Every once in a while in Baltimore, there was a, um, a local broadcast school, Maryland School of Broadcasting, and they would have panel discussions. And I was typically trotted out as one of the women in broadcasting because there weren't very many. So I went there, and um, they had a very poised moderator doing this panel. And I took note of her because she was one of the students at the school, and I thought, Wow, I mean, you usually don't find anybody who's really smooth like that in a broadcasting school. So she was still in the broadcasting school, and we really didn't get a chance to talk much, but I just remembered her name and remembered her. Her name was Robin Ophelia Quivers. Okay, now, the smooth is, is if, if when you see Robin immediately, like right away back in those days, you might think, well, she's got it all because she's, she looks put together, loads of makeup on, whatever, um, rich, this, that, and the other thing, friendly, affable, whatever. But then it doesn't take very long to get into Robin's real character, and it's actually a, a big turnoff. Mm. Um, and so I, 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 there's one uh, Bill Boggs interview she does in 1984 where the nervous laughter is just uh, over the 
over the top. I'd have to, I'm going to remaster it and try to get it a little um, better condition before we play it someday. But um, either way, this is from Robin's book. At that time, Denise was program director of 98 Rock in Baltimore, one of the most successful album rock stations in the country. For a woman to have achieved her level of success in a virtually all-male area of radio was impressive, to say the least. Because of it, she'd achieved national recognition, and in my book, this made her a need-to-know person. Star-fucking-Robin at her best. I planned to do the most excellent job I could that day, and the fact that I was moderating guaranteed that I would get more than just a chance to ask questions. So imagine how disappointed in myself I was when Denise and I wound up arguing about music at the brief reception after the program. The incident demonstrated to me that I needed to learn to control my compulsion to argue every little possible issue. Still, I followed up Denise's appearance with a thank you note and added her name to the list of contacts I wanted to keep in touch with after graduation. Um, so there's a couple of things about the book that I'm going to read from uh, page 141 and 140, a little segment of her job, hopping from job to job. But yeah, go ahead. No, I have nothing. I just, what okay. could Robin have been passionate about, about music? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the next clip is called Hottie Robin Tells Her Side of the Story. I uh, didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up as a child, and so I somehow wound up being a nurse and going to nursing school Somehow, when uh, I got to college, and that's what I did for the first six years of my life, and it wasn't like I then realized I was supposed to be in radio and then immediately got myself a radio job. I stumbled around for a while thinking of other things that I might do because I knew it wasn't nursing for me for the rest of my life. And it was almost by accident because I finally got so desperate that I sat down with the yellow pages one day and I said, I need to find myself a new profession and I'm just going to flip through this book until I see what I'm supposed to do. And I sat down and I, I wrote down the number for a broadcasting school, the number for a business school, and the number for some other kind of school. She made it through the bees, it sounds like. Broadcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> business. Uh, I'm getting tired of this. Um, she, you know, I told you, I've said before that it, she writes in her book as if she's a passenger in her life. Yes. Like it was uh, always, the language is always, I found myself yeah. here. Fate, I found myself. Fate, and, fate led me to. And, and in this case, she goes, somehow I became a nurse. Yeah. Somehow? Or is this quantum leap? You just leapt into this body and you're, uh, here I am as a nurse. You took steps, didn't you? Right. She uh, got, she I, went, she got as far as broadcasting in the phone book, but what just missed bullshit. Business. She missed business. Yeah. yeah. She could um, have been a butler, maybe if she'd gone a little further. A little further. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to interview each of these people, and the one I like the best, that's what I'm going to do. And I never kept the other two appointments. I went to the broadcasting school, and here I am. Once I got into uh, broadcasting school, I looked at what the disc jockey did, and I looked at what the news person did, and I said, you know, I can't sit there for two and a half, three minutes waiting for that song to be done before I can speak again. <laughs> okay, first off, I love she blew off two appointments rather than, you know, call them off and say, she doesn't mention she called them and said, sorry, I can't make it. She just said, screw it. But then uh, the idea that she, you know, has to have her big yapper open for the majority of the time. Um, that's at least honest about that. So and it looks like the journalists get to do all the talking. So that's what I'll do. I didn't even finish school before uh, I got my first job. I had no idea that I had a pretty decent voice, but as soon as the people at the school heard me, 
they said, you know what, you could actually go someplace in this industry. And they started uh, introducing me to people in the industry and sending me out on auditions. And so before the term ended, I was already hired to work at a station in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I was hired to do the news in the morning on the half hour, and then there was an, a half hour long midday newscast that the afternoon anchor and the morning anchor used to do together. However, I only worked at that station for one day. <laughs> I love that. She yeah. goes, one of the, this is here, 2 p.m. of my first professional day in radio found me sitting in the office of Lloyd Roach, a general manager of WCMB Harrisburg, a top 40 a.m. station in a medium market. Again, I was told that I had potential and I was offered an opportunity at $60 more a week than I was making in Carlisle. I couldn't refuse. Given the fact that I would be leaving W100 after one day on the job, I wanted to give them two weeks notice. But Lloyd said it was now or never. So I took it. What a shithead. Yeah. Yeah. Robin has no idea that what Paul Colfer says. Paul Colfer says, "Look, there it was. The industry had a good reason to to find culti to, to cultivate black talent because yeah. you know this industry needs it." And she even said, "There's not very many women when they all they needed to see was that Robin was a black woman." They go, "You've got promise. Don't yes. even bother speaking. I don't need to hear your reading." Yeah. Um, I don't need to hear anything else. You've got potential. I mean, she probably was the only person in her class who looked like Robin. Well, yeah, I, I would say, especially well, coming out of Baltimore, maybe I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, what, what would a, a class of broadcasting in Baltimore look like? I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what the demographics would have been like, I, but yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it's maybe, maybe black, but not female. You know, in, in some maybe cases. right, right, yeah. but right. but um, she's ticking a know, lot she, of boxes, is the point. Yeah, yeah, she's ticking a lot of boxes, and they're they couldn't even they don't even have to graduate her. No, 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 you we're you're so in demand, you don't understand how badly we need you. The only way she could have been better is if she was a senior citizen and gay, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and <laughs> mentally deficient. She would have ticked every single yeah. box, you know, yeah. and we, it's not to say she, she isn't actually, you know, special needs guys, but, yeah. um, uh, either way, we're going to continue with Robin's, uh, wonderful Van Halen inspired, uh, storytelling. Because the guy who was leaving the job to go to work at a station in Harrisburg, sat down with me to give me an orientation to the station and he said let's do this you know midday newscast together today it's my last one and i'll do it with you it'll be your introduction to the station and we did the newscast and when it was over he said you know what i know this place looks a little weird please don't quit i'm going to a bigger station and i think they have a position for you so i was hired by the guy i came to replace at his new station you hadn't even opened your mouth and you're already getting promoted, being handed new jobs. Yeah, pretty pretty <laughs> I mean, amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, Robin doesn't stop and think for a second. I wonder why that was. I hadn't even <laughs> opened my mouth and they were <laughs> handing well, me a, a higher paying job. Well, guys, at the risk of sounding like some kind of like out of touch white guys, it's not about that. It's about the you have to understand the context of what the radio was, what radio was looking for in those days in, in this in certain markets. And especially in Howard's context where he was saying like racist, racist, racially insensitive things 
uh, and he was a, you know, a, a Jewish kid from Long Island and they needed a counterbalance. They need a counterpoint to wash away any potential blowback from, you know, listeners or critics or whatever, just, you know, sponsors say, you know, he, how could he be racist? He's working with a, a black yeah. woman. Well, you know, I, I how mean, he'd be sexist well, it, if she was, you, you don't think she would stick up for women and, 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 and minorities. Well, no, she wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah. I mean, you know, Paul Colford says, I mean, radio is a government regulated industry and yes. the government had concerns about making sure that there were people of color working in yes. this industry. So yes. it's not like it's um, us projecting. They're saying, okay, the, we, we want the government off of our back, but we don't have any applicants. Finally, an yes. applicant walks in. They go, you're hired. Perfect. Yes. You're promoted. Boom. Perfect. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So all you can do is hope that somebody like Robin walks into the office. Oh, yeah. That was in Harrisburg. Harrisburg, I was there for six months. I was incredibly ambitious. It had taken me a long time to find out what I really wanted to do and to actually be doing something I loved. And once I got into radio, I didn't care how long the hours were. I was just having fun and every day was different. And I was just voracious. I was trying to learn as much as I possibly could. And in six months in um, Harrisburg, I decided, you know what? I think I've gotten all that I can out of this place. I need to move on. And I contacted some people I had met in Baltimore and told them what I was up to. And just said, you know, if you ever have any openings, remember me. And uh, within that six-month period of time, I got a call from one of the program directors of a station in Baltimore who was starting a new midday show and was looking for some talent. (laughs) And they found me, the talent. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is like fairy tale stuff. Like you're in the, you're in the business for six months and you decide it's time for you to move on to bigger things. Um, this is the, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Just that, that that is, of course, everybody right out of college thinks that like, oh, you know, I should be making this, I should be whatever, but she's actually getting it and still spiteful. You know, she's still, you look at her memoirs. I, I wasn't given enough. Okay, I'm going to play this for you. Now, this is maybe unfair because this is Robin in 2019, but this is the kind of of talent we're talking about. So this is the 10th anniversary of that. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff the Coast Guard does. You know, they man the waters and make sure people are safe and rescued. And now uh, these guys aren't getting paid. They say that the... uh, like the amount of us in in that particular era, but this is the year yeah. before they got rid of the news. She was not in a good condition to to be able to do this. Yeah. But she well, you've like heard, even you've before heard. that, the the robinisrong dot com. The whole website was founded yeah. on not even that she was getting stories wrong, but that she was not owning up to the fact that she wasn't reading anything first time. Now early on, she might have. I'd say early on in her career, she did read beforehand and did a professional job, but her her copy was shitty at WNBC when they finally get there that she, and she couldn't do four stories in five minutes. (laughs) I wouldn't say she was a strong reader. No, God, no. So she, so she, so she, she said, I solved it. So what I did was I, I just condensed three stories in five, in five minutes and let, you know, stopped at three. You know, I just did less than I was supposed to, which is, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, every underachievers goal in life. Um, and so, 
like at some point, I'm sure she was more professional than she ended up being. But when she got the big money with Howard and later on, I think she got hella lazy. Well, you know, anytime Howard has ever had to step away from the microphone for just moments, uh, you know, Howard and sorry, Fred and Robin 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 panic. They panic. They have nothing. They've been in the business for 40, 50, 60 years, whatever. They have nothing. For so, a perfect, um, yeah, go ahead. Just that, just the, and you've you've heard her in her attempts to branch out, oh, and it's chatter. just the nervous laughter. Yeah. And you know, th- th- another reason why I say that that book of hers is so dark is because we're used to the nervous laughter, Robin, right. um, not the uh, uh, remembering herself as being this venomous snake. You know, just uh, who everyone feared and all that kind. Of, no one feared. I mean, maybe, maybe in the back office they did because she treats people who are subordinate to her very poorly. Mm-hmm. But if you just had a conversation with her, you would go, okay, here's a person who's obviously trying to get by on this um, uh, on this fake laughter uh, yeah. as a survival tactic because they're yeah. not very swift. You know, they're they're not too sharp. Yeah. But um, anyhow, that's not how she sees herself. It was great. I was learning a lot. It was a bigger market. I was really excited about it. I liked the people I was working with. And once again, I felt I was in a position that I was going to learn a lot. Unfortunately, I didn't get to stay there that long either. One day, I was off in the afternoon, and I tuned in WFBR, and I heard Robin. And I thought, wow, she sounds great. And not only that, but she's got a great laugh. Imagine if you put her on the air with somebody who was actually funny, because this disc jockey wasn't. And she was doing her best to make him sound amusing anyway. As soon as I started working there, I started getting calls from a woman named Denise Oliver. And she started calling me, as I said, as soon as I got to Baltimore. She heard me on the radio. She started soliciting me to send her tapes. She started taking me out to lunch. I was actually being courted, you know, to uh, work at a station in Washington, D.C. And I just didn't think I was ready. She really had to coerce me into taking this job because I'd been moving so much in that first year of broadcasting and I really didn't think I was ready for Washington DC but every time I had to get ready really quick because those jobs were there and the thing that made me take the job was that she finally said let me play you a tape of this guy I want you to work with and I'm like I've heard morning men before I don't care yeah, of course. Big, big, you know, highfalutin Robin doesn't need. I, I Listen, I've been there, kid. You don't have to tell me. I've been in the end zone before. Um, yeah. But what you I, know, what I it, love it, especially. It, it oh, must sorry, make, please. It must drive Howard crazy that allegedly he'd been wanting to do radio since he was a kid. Allegedly, right. which yeah. we didn't. Yeah. But here he is. Robin has only been out of broadcasting school, which she didn't even complete. <laughs> for one year right and and they're courting her in in dc one year and i mean howard had been on the air for a couple of years and couldn't even get hartford without begging to get hartford. To- toiling yeah yeah and then um yeah, i mean he literally had to beg because the guy said you're not good enough you know <laughs> but uh, there's there were no stations beating down the door to get him no. uh, it must drive him crazy yeah. That he has to bite his tongue and say, you know why, right, Robin? But he can't do that. No, so, he cannot. So, yeah. No. And so this was this come from the audio book that I cut for the aforementioned episode. This one's called um, Nostradamus. 
Denise was so sure that Howard and I would make a great team that following a brief conversation with him after he and I talked on the phone, she extended her hand and welcomed me aboard. Howard Stern was going to be phenomenally successful. I knew it the moment I heard his tape. I was going to be the newswoman on this incredibly popular morning drive show in a top 10 market. This is perfect example of her and and Fred. First of all, bullshitting, but acting like they have some kind of prognosticate prognos predictive. Mm-hmm. Prog, I don't know prog, prognostication. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to. Is that a word, prognosticative? I don't know. Yeah, if it, yeah. I don't know if that's typically a word. associated with uh, the Jadini. I think that yeah, word. I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, the he her like these mad mad uh, predictive skills. Like where listen, I'm gonna that he's gonna be massively successful. Or Fred saying, you know, I knew I know what the these, these radio guys are like when they're at, you know, yeah. getting uh, Rob Fred after his first job, knowing all about, yes. you know, how as the if Robin works. had, as if Robin's some kind of veteran who knows yeah. when she hears a morning man, she's only ever heard in the four cities that she's lived in. I'm sure morning men. Right. And, and, you know, morning men at the time, you, I, I don't know that they were morning man, the way that they became, you know, where it's more than just, a little uh, quip between songs, but you know, more yeah. of a personality coming through. Yeah. But um, listening to her delivery, her just do that read, who would listen to this and go, I've got to have her on the radio. She sounds great. Well, she sounds terrible. Well, she, um, well, in this, in this particular book, yeah, she was nasal for the, the audio book yes, recording she was. and yeah. decided to go ahead with it. And, uh, the, 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 the sort of dullness, the flatness of the sound guys, sorry, that was from the source material. That was a cassette, same as the, uh, <laughs> so I couldn't do anything about that. And honestly, I tried to soup it up as much as I could, but, um, uh, the next clip is also from the same source, the queen, the fruit, his wife, and their barnacle. While I thought I was going to be furiously clutching the threads of Howard's coattail, he was thinking he'd found a full collaborator. he had always envisioned a show in which the personality, not the music, was the draw. He wanted to be that personality, but he also knew that he couldn't do it alone. He was looking for a few complimentary co-workers to help carry the ball. You know when he read that, he must have got furious. Hmm. Like yeah. the, my, my contention, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. Sorry, guys. I apologize. We do run over old ground sometimes from time to time. He, that Miss America, the release, was a direct response to Robin's book as if to put her in her place, number one. But number two, he needed to rebut this fictitious thing about what, what he thinks is fictitious because she outed him for not wanting to go to mornings. And he, for the longest right. time, he said, you're to blame for us going to mornings. Meanwhile, that was where the money was. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know, like he was content to be number one in a market uh, in the, in the afternoons when nobody was competing. And yeah. she outed that, uh, like they were riding in a town car and he said, why bother? We're number one. And she goes, yeah, but we're, we have no competition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's how he likes it. Imagine being in the Olympics, <laughs> the other nine runners yeah. in the hundred meter dash all like, you know, get disqualified. You're like, this is the best race ever. So, uh, I just found that, I, I found that not, fascinating. Not, not to mention too, that she only viewed this as a stepping stone towards television. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always amusing when Robin is, it happens rarely, but interviewed Mm -hmm. as some kind of veteran of radio. Yeah. Uh, she knows nothing about radio. She's only in it because she couldn't reach the next step that she assumed she'd be able to reach. Mm -hmm. And because of, uh, 
a superstitious guy who turned out to be very successful, who has um, you know kept her, kept her close to him for his entire career. Yeah, she certainly wouldn't make it on her own. Uh, let me give you a second. I think there's another clip I'd like to play here. This is from Al's Boring Podcast, and it's in relation to it's it's a, it's a quip that he he made before he left the show. He uh, got Robin a little. He got back at Robin a little bit about this whole when she discussed she discussed recently in this audio clip that uh, you just heard um, that she, she was going to be a journalist, and so this is what he had to say about it. I mean, and, and I re- one day I'm on there doing the headlines live and uh, Robin Quivers says live, she says, Howard, this, this Steve Langford doing the news. He's just, he's terrible. He's obvious, you know, this news is just, a, and I, I leaned into the microphone on live on the air and I go, Howard, it's pretty interesting taking uh, news criticism from a woman whose idea of reporting is reading a newspaper out loud <laughs> into a microphone. How'd that go over? Well, I think I think it was she, uh, you know, we went back and forth and Howard said something about, oh, we're you know, having a dispute here in the studio between two reporters. And I said, Howard, there's only one reporter in this studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's yeah. unquestionably true. Yeah. Robin's not a reporter. No, she's not. She's not a journalist, first of all. And she's not a reporter. Journalist. No. Yeah. She's a yeah. newsreader. Newsreader. Absolutely. Uh, so the next bit of that clip, guys. Howard really wanted me to jump into the show whenever I was around, and I just didn't get it. He kept nagging me and nagging me until I finally started doing what he asked. I started flipping on the switch for my mic whenever I walked into the studio. I had never felt so wanted before. I decided to become the best darn sidekick Howard could have. To do that, I needed to know everything about him. So I attached myself to him like a barnacle. After the show, we'd have lunch together. (laughs) We'd spend hours on the phone, bolstering each other's spirits, trading information, and discussing philosophy. Next thing you know, Howard was no longer saying I, but started every story with me and Robin. The only possible obstacle I saw on the horizon was Howard's wife. I was deathly afraid I wouldn't like her. But right from the start, I thought I liked her more than I liked him. She was lively, vivacious, warm, and a lot of fun to be around in her own right. In a very short time, the three of us would become fast friends. We started seeing each other even on the weekends. (laughs) We're not going to go further into the Robin book, guys, but I did want that just to color a little bit of what the scene was like back then. And, I mean, if we did go further in the book, we'd have to go into the reading again and redo our own really already amazing work that's been undone by some some really childish shitheads at another site. And um, the like she was desperate it wasn't like we became fast friends she had no friends right they didn't they didn't know anybody in that town either right you know so they just happened to be all, all around the same age yeah this is a marriage a of the desperate yeah yep. yep yeah and and fred is included in that in that bunch absolutely so i mean they're all social miscreants and just not i mean you'd go deviance on some level in terms of howard but you definitely all three of them individually i i suppose if you had to pick any one of them separately at a party to go talk to, it might be maybe Fred, if you wanted to talk music or something, and he might be the most normal of the bunch, but even I don't, even then I don't think it would take long for you to figure out this guy's a little fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I would not want to talk to any of them at a party. <laughs> you, you listen, you, you, when you said, um, I canceled my subscription, I go, no, this is like a, the end of an era. Like it's that bad that even Ben doesn't want to document this nonsense or did it dovetail into you losing your Twitter account as well? Oh, yeah, that's part of it. Oh yeah. That's, that's definitely part of it. If I didn't have, um, a platform to react to it, why am I listening to it? You know, yeah. I'm not just going to sit there and um, shout at the wind. This guy's mm-hmm. lying. Yeah. So um, that was definitely that was definitely a big part of it. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, I didn't want to start over and create some new Twitter account and just tweet out into the wind. But it's um, ironically yeah. enough. Now you probably now it probably wouldn't have happened. Probably not. And and it should not have happened because I was yeah. suspended for describing what Howard did. Yeah. And absolutely. Considered- he's not. He's not. His, his blue check mark wasn't taken away. No, no, no. It's the times that I've ever had my t- account suspended. It was describing what he just did. Right. Uh, number uh, next clip, guys. Chapter seven, part three. I would like somebody to open my skull at this point. I introduced him and there are a lot of stories about how they truly met. And I don't know where people come up with these things, but I'm the only other person who was there. We all like had lunch together and they hit it off right away. And we talked about Robin's past for one thing. And Robin had been a nurse. She worked for actually a very prestigious shock trauma center in uh, Baltimore. And she went and she joined the Air Force. And I said, Robin, why on earth would you join the military? She said, well, I I thought it couldn't possibly be as bad as they said it was, which is kind of an odd reason to go change her career, I think, but that's what she did. Yeah. So um, she started talking about some of her her, uh, experiences when she was working in shock trauma and talking about how one day they cut the wrong guy's skull open to do brain surgery and she was laughing and Howard thought it was great and so I could tell they would really hit it off. After seeing them together, I thought that they would make a good pair and they cut them both to work together. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, we cut the wrong guy's skull open. Ha, 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 ha. It's gallows humor. That, I'm only laughing like, because it sounds psychotic to laugh about it, really. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and I guess I'm psychotic, I suppose, but I, I'm, I'm laughing more at the. No, I'm no, thinking, I know. I know what you're I'm saying. You're Air laughing. Force, but it, also la- laughing, laughing at the at, whole Air Force thing. Because yeah, she, that, she, laughing she, at her laughing at. Oh, yeah, we cut the wrong guy's skull open. Right. Exactly. What a story. We you wouldn't have even been anywhere near that. Yeah, she she well, wasn't performing any surgeries. Well, th- well, that was it, and also um, the whole the whole the, with the story <laughs> the way the story went in her book. She was hung over and couldn't get rid of the, didn't think she could get rid of the uh, uh, the solicitor, not the solicitor, the um, the uh, recruiting officer for the Air Force who was calling like a yes. like the way the way right. uh, the way a telemarketer would, and, you know, join, 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 and she said, I couldn't get rid of her, so I joined. In my drunken haze, I didn't know <laughs> what I'd right. done. So again, That's it's right. not me. It's Fine, the food. I'll join. I'm going to blame alcohol. My, uh, I'm going to blame the alcohol, the bottle, and her persistence. It's not me oh, yeah. saying yes. Bl- oh, I mean, it's like, like I said, whenever she, in the education of Robin, she she blames the U.S. government, the public school system, her parents, yes. mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so on and so on for her being overweight. Yep. Nothing to do with choosing to eat. Fattening, high-calorie foods. Yep. Next bit, large quantities. Is and, and ch- the rest of chapter seven, guys, is mostly uh, stuff about her, and we can read a little bit of it. But uh, uh, just for example, on page sixty-four, 
Uh, third paragraph. Don't ask me about my parents, she remarked on Howard's show. Another time when Howard was being scolded by his mother on the air for calling Ray a Hitler, he said, boy, that's nice compared to what Robin calls her mother. And um, further along, uh, fifth paragraph. Um, you want to read that one kids would say? Kids would say, <clears throat> kids would say to me, why do you laugh so much? What is so funny? She explained to the Amsterdam News in 1984. And I would tell them, why shouldn't I laugh? I suppose it has a lot to do with nervousness. It's a nervous reaction in some instances. It's a nervous reaction in virtually all instances. Yes. It's a survival tactic. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you do that and you're ingratiating yourself. You're presenting yourself, basically, laughing mm-hmm. and laughing and laughing. You're saying to them, I'm submissive to you. Yeah, um, it's rolling over. A lot of the information is derived from, it's taken directly from Quivers of Life. So anybody who wants to go through that by all means go ahead but it says she basically she wanted she wanted to see the she thought she was seeing the world by going into the air force but she was stationed in uh um let's see where it was ohio dayton ohio dayton ohio yeah and then it goes on to the next page 66 uh then it talks a little bit about her job opportunities in baltimore at the radio stations uh she really worked hard on her research says mike golden another wfbr associate um says at the last paragraph second last paragraph julian golding uh these are people that she's worked with uh uh, roserl julian was a colleague uh, and other co-workers were surprised when Robin left a serious job in order to hook up with the wacky Stern. Their unanimous recollection of Robin's bubbly personality and sparkling giggle touched on elements that the newly formed team at DC 101 may have considered even more important than her news gathering abilities. To equip her further with the role of Howard, she had experience doing the news report at WFBR during the wake-up show of Johnny Walker, whose talent for double entendre and insult outraged Baltimore officials who were targets of his barbs and earned him high ratings. Her ability to interact with a controversial personality controversial personality would serve her well. So now we're going into chapter eight, guys. And the audio starts right here. On paper, Howard fit the description of a transient radio broadcaster. He was 27 years old and starting his fourth job in five years. But unlike other disc jockeys laying over in Washington en route to a better gig, Howard emitted a jolt of electricity on a dial unaccustomed to his brand of pranks and foolishness. During his first broadcast on March 2, 1981, he called the office of Mayor Marion Barry and loudly demanded the assistant who answered the phone to explain what kind of a man called himself Marion. That's a girl's name, Howard insisted. He suggested that there be a local parade to welcome his new morning show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is the exact same shit oh, he yeah. did everywhere he went. DC is not ready for that kind of edge. Yeah. A honestly. parade. Yep. Uh, the next clip uh, is called uh, Heavy Bob Grant Influence Here. His premier week included mockery of President Ronald Reagan, whom Howard accused of greasing and coloring his hair. In phone conversations with women about men, he asked, did you score? There was something about the president playing with Nancy's gun. Sure, I'm a little crazy and a little weird, he told the Washington Star during his first week. But I think a listener can identify with being a little weird. I didn't get the joke. Uh, uh, The president playing with Nancy's gun. 
Is Nancy like Myra Breckenridge and has uh, something uh, between her uh, legs that we don't know? I don't of? know. Yeah, I don't know. And, and, right. And that's a good <laughs> callback. Call um, he voted for Reagan. So it's funny that he's out there pretending that he's not, uh, you know, he's one of the Union of Brotherhood. Yeah. But he's not he's not that guy. He no, voted he's for Reagan. Cer- certainly not. I don't think this area has experienced a morning rock and roll program that has something more to say than just being an electronic jukebox. So that's what I have to offer. Howard's give and take on the phone, his dismissive hangups on those who annoyed him, ah, your mother, and his irreverent opinions about the president on down gave his program the hook of unpredictability in an otherwise predictable medium. Okay, so uh, there's some sections that are... uh that are uh, un- again they're clipped out if he recalled for a moment the emotionless sterile programming that he'd had to endure on those distant mornings when ben stern took him to his recording studio in manhattan the contrast would have seemed especially satisfying um they think a non-talking uh, a non-talking non-thinking disc jockey is all listeners will stand for he said but i think that's nothing but robot radio it doesn't relate and it's dishonest <laughs> wow how far we've come since then mm. Yeah. Next one, the free spirit. That's the clip. That's a short clip in between all that. He saw himself as a free spirit among his contemporaries in rock radio. Helping him make the proceedings sound less robotic was Robin Quivers. (laughs) So, and this goes into the last bit here. Laugh track comment omitted. So one sec. Howard became comfortable with Robin from their very first show together. He dispensed advice on picking up women from a book written by a man who had slept with thousands. One of the author's suggestions was to wear tight pants, which prompted Quivers to ask, if the guy managed to bed thousands of women, when did he have time to wear pants? Howard loved her reaction. Their partnership clicked. A Washington Post reporter observed, a genuine, sincere hilarity pulsates over the airwaves when she and Stern start exchanging commentary. Now, what's omitted there is the the one the, they read it incorrectly. First, he read it incorrectly, and that was on purpose. I'm certain listeners recognized that she was much more than Howard's newsreader. She became his laugh track. A Washington Post reporter observed, and that's exactly <laughs> what her function was: black, yes, female laugh track. End of yep. story. And that's what should go on her her tombstone. That's, Howard got one. He got he got his delivered black, in studio. Female that's, laugh track. That's funny. That's it. I mean, um, I was looking at funny tombstone um, uh, because there's all all kinds of them all over the place. Um, one of my favorite uh, pictures was when Don Rickles passed away, not his tombstone because that hadn't been uh, erected yet, but on the Hollywood Walk of Fame outside of the Chinese theater um, where his star was. Someone had put a hockey puck along with a bunch of flowers. Mm. And I just got, I just, and actually, uh, I was actually touched by that because, you know, it's, it's a Don Rickles, it's, it's something, it was something infamous way back in the day. For Robin, what can you say about her? If she passed yep. tomorrow, what would she have as a legacy? A really shitty yep. pair of books, uh, one of which made her look like a monster. The other one was a complete falsehood and a lie when she finally admitted years later that she was eating burgers as she was promoting it fatter than ever uh and talking (laughs) the the audacity i mean it would be like uh, i don't know it would be like uh, daniel carver promoting a book about racial equality yeah yeah Yeah. i I mean that is one of the most absurd book promotions that you've ever heard of this morbidly obese woman going out there and I love the clip on when she's on the doctors and the, the doctor 
explains to her how her type of cancer usually strikes women who haven't had children and are obese. Yes. And it's just, it's just to be hit with that, with, with the big smile on her face the whole time. Um, and then to go and explain to this very thin fit trim doctor, you know, you don't have to overdo it on the holidays. You could have sensible pies and Robin is the voice <laughs> of the sensible. <laughs> The woman who looks like she's just been peeled right off of a food box, Aunt Jemima box, is gonna is the voice of sensible eating. Um, you know, you there's know, no shortage of photoshops of her as an Aunt Jemima bottle. That's the sad. Yeah, that's the sad yeah, part. Right. And it doesn't look dissimilar. It, it's like gallon sized bottle though. You, you better to, believe uh, it. Like a Carla Rossi sized bottle of of yeah. of maple syrup. This is one of the clips that we just heard described of the outrageous content of Howard um, reading about this pickup artist book. And here's a clip of him from the time. Yeah. What turns women on? I've got this really weird article here about a book from a guy who claims to have slept with over 300 women. He says, in order to pick up women, there are certain things you have to do. It's really weird because, I, you know, these ideas here seem really incredible. Um, curl your hair. It says more women like curly hair. Wear tight pants in the crotch area. Stare at a woman's breast and neck. Hang out around ladies' rooms. Wait for women to come out of the bathroom. That's a good place to meet them. <laughs> I guess they feel better coming out than they do going in. Those are some of the ideas. What are your ideas? I want to talk to these guys who uh, who have no problem on Friday nights meeting women. He, he couldn't sound go. creepier if he tried. If he had a windowless van and paraded naked in front of uh, school children, he wouldn't be any creepier. And you can hear him panic as he's about to say the word breasts. Yeah. He, he internally panics before he yeah. says the stare at a woman's breasts and neck. <laughs> he braces himself. <laughs> shock master. Um, what was her name? Andrea Martin from SCTV used to have play a character called, I can't remember the name, but it was Dr. Cheryl Kinsey. So she was playing like a sex doctor. And every time there'd be, every time there'd be like a, a word, like, and the, and the, you know, in the, uh, groin she would shudder <laughs> she would just shudder <laughs> every time so yeah. that reminded me of that a little bit and that's a great compilation his voice through the years so my question to you before we close this one off yeah. uh, uh james jay santi one of our co-hosts he believes that the the high pitch was really his nerves early on and that he naturally does have some type of like a baritone like my type of voice i suppose but i'm i'm not so certain that it's not all an affectation because you heard the earlier that that John Lennon broadcast. He's clearly putting it all on, and I don't think no. there's anything. There might be there might be a way to to, ba to base up his voice even with that old technology, but mostly I think it's him going, you know, deliberately slowing it down. Yeah, so sound you can, bassier. We've heard we've heard high pitch Eric put on a fake yeah. deep voice. It's possible. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's it's a good reason why Howard doesn't like to uh, engage socially very much. It's a it's a hard act to to keep up. You know yeah. this fake voice so um, so it's why you he never sounds the same on two different microphones well do you agree then for example that when he um that it's nerve i don't it, think it's nerves okay so what, what about like when he's on a talk show you think it's all prep they've they've adjusted the levels for his particular mic uh, like what for example like the old talk shows or not even not even let's say uh when he was on the view in the mid 2000s or the late 2000s um i think that he will maintain a composure i mean i i've said before he's talked about this before how he took um 
vocal coaching and learn some diaphragm techniques. Sure. I don't know if I've where I've seen. I know that he's. I've either heard him say it or he's. Or he has written it. He's talked about it. We have. I know I have audio clips of it somewhere where he says it, the must. The the lady told him you got to shave your mustache because yeah, you with your mustache, you're thinking constantly about how you look while you're speaking with the mustache. Yeah. You get rid yeah. of it. All, now it's just your voice. And he said yeah. it did change. And I I actually no. probably that's probably true. But no, well, I think it was more. I, no, I think what she was saying was probably correct. But he was always trying to do some affectation throughout the years. Well, he's always been trying to do an affectation. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and so is Robin. I mean, Robin's gone as far as being British. Yeah. Um, but, but, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a luxury that mm -hmm. that's what they have time to think about is mm -hmm. how can I make my voice sound more interesting? You know, <laughs> it's, it's cause they have nothing else going on in those heads. So they're worried more about like, well, how do I, how can I make my sound sound more interesting to people? But, um, you know, he's tried everything obviously from five packs of cigarettes a day to drinking hot water, which is the reason why he drinks hot water is it can, um, loosen your vocal cords and make your voice sound a little deeper to, uh, compose the way he literally will sit and use his, uh, diaphragm when he speaks. Um, but you, you know, you hear him on America's got talent or whatever. And I just hear a very stilted delivery. Oh, it's yeah. very measured. It's um, uh, it's a performance, and yeah. you know, you he, his voice cracks more than anyone I've ever heard. Well, Here's yeah, a man it, who's going to be seventy years old, and his voice still cracks. Yeah, the later the later Letterman uh, uh, segments are also very telling, and in fact, the Netflix interview that he did with him. Mm. That we that's, where his where fake you, beard fake beard and you can hear him really really uh struggling mm. and and then and that awful ben voice that he can't even do, he yes. wouldn't even do anymore yeah. i mean it really and no one was ever, none of his peers ever believes him i mean i remember seinfeld saying like you know your voice has changed your voice used to be and he goes yeah well i you know i i was nervous my first you were nervous for your first 20 years on radio um <laughs> <laughs> my one of my favorites was Bill Burr telling him, "Oh, is this the part where you go into you were beat up by black guys?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got a little bit more of the same clip, guys, and then we'll let this one go. As Robin saw it, the show's loftier purpose was to make listeners think twice about their words and deeds. <laughs> Blacks in the Washington audience told me they liked the idea that white people were hearing exactly what they sounded like to black people because they never listen to themselves and they might not like what they hear, she said. Jesus, I'm not sure I quite no, get that, Robin. But No, the black people were not talking to her. No, she where was not she, talking where, to her. Where would she find herself in conversation with black people? She avoided them. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a little. Yeah, the, the, when you when you quote Robin, it's always there's always a bit of cringe involved. Um, oh, guys, I, I yeah, I don't I don't have any more clips for today. We're going to stop this when it's at good length. Uh, for Ben, thank you so much for sitting on this one. Uh, Sam, sorry you couldn't make this particular one, but that's okay. There's always there's plenty more of the book left to go, and um, we've got loads of audio left to go. In, so. Yeah, exactly. But it's you know it's a good chunk, um, and eventually we'll get started on the education of Robin as well. So, any closing thoughts, my friend? No, I'm uh, enjoying this. <laughs> Okay. Thanks guys. Take you. Take yeah. care. We'll see you on the next one. And maybe in the future, Ben will do be doing some things again, not just the vegetation of Robin, but some uh, subject that interests him. He's going to be on for another, like a, a short episode or something on Patreon. So, um, we love you. Take care. Stay safe. Likewise.
I he, see. He was like a, a monster guitar. That's classic uh, Ozzy, too, when he comes in. Mr. Crowley! <laughs> <laughs> the video, he's like got the hands up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm the devil. I'll take your consoles from you. Don't you think? Mr. Crowley! <laughs> Don't you think Ozzy does that hands-out thing because he's got like sort of a Christ complex? Well, probably. Now I think it's the lizard.